continuing on through the first 18 verses of the first chapter of John's gospel. This is John's Christmas story, as it were, before we look at God's word this morning. Let us turn to him in prayer. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who first breathed out this, your word, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and living of this radiant truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to be reading this morning the first 13 verses of John chapter 1. We're going to be focusing in particular on verses 6 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think I have shared with you all before that my most of my extended family lived up north when I was growing up. And typically, the only time I got to see uh, this extended family was during the Christmas season. I, I vividly remember the long car rides over the Christmas break, traveling up to New York and Michigan, where my grandparents lived, along with my aunts and uncles and cousins. And we would make stops in Ohio, coming and going from those places to see more aunts and uncles and cousins. In all, we traveled more than 2,000 miles. We traveled across parts of eight states and through part of Canada in the course of less than two weeks. I'm sure that this was an exhausting trip for my parents, but with the exception of the long hours spent in the car, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it because of the promise of a white Christmas, which we don't ever get in the South, but more importantly, I loved it because I really enjoyed getting to see the family who I did not see the rest of the year. I loved being in my grandparents' homes and in their presence. 
It wasn't enough to speak with them on the telephone every once in a while. I, I wanted to be with them in person, and so I have very, very fond memories of those trips. And there couldn't have been a more appropriate time than Christmas to make these visits. After all, Christmas is a time for family. And that's sort of become a joke, right? There are countless Christmas movies that poke fun at the family aspect of the holidays and the drama that goes on when family members gather together during this time. And certainly there is some truth to the reality that when families gather together, there can be some fireworks. Some dread the holidays for this reason, but others dread the Christmas season because it's a reminder of the family who isn't there, the family member who couldn't make it home for some reason, the family member who is estranged, the family member who departed this earthly life since the last Christmas. And the sadness of these realities can be especially apparent, notably felt during the Christmas season because, after all, Christmas is a time for family. We seem to have an innate sense about that truth. And the reason is, I think, that we are drawn, no matter how exhausted or emotionally drained it makes us, to gather with family on Christmas. We'll go to great lengths, spend enormous amounts of money, travel over great distances to be with family only for a day or two over Christmas. And it's because family is deeply ingrained, embedded into the Christmas story. And as the story has shaped our tradition surrounding this holiday, family has been understood to be a crucial aspect of it. Even as the culture has departed from the, the reason for the season, as some put it, the traditions have left their mark. And we've seen this with other aspects of the season, right? Even those who deny the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives are left in some ways pointing to the truth of who Jesus Christ is and why he came, even if it's unconsciously. People continue to put up evergreen trees in their living rooms that give witness to life in the midst of death. People continue to decorate their homes with thousands of little lights that twinkle in the darkness of this time of year. People continue to sing the words, joy to the world, the Lord is come, while they pick out gifts for loved ones in Dillard's. In the same way, the importance of family is woven into this season. Can you imagine the Christmas season without all of the things that point to Jesus, without the lights, without the evergreen trees and wreaths and garland, without the words peace and joy plastered over everything? And can you imagine Christmas without family? So why is that? How is family deeply embedded into this season and into the nativity story well 
Think about it with me. How does the gospel of Matthew begin? With a genealogy. What is a genealogy? It's a list of family members through the generations. It's important for Matthew to establish what family this child Jesus is being born into, right? That Jesus descends from Abraham and comes through the line of David. This gives witness to the reality that he comes as the fulfillment of prophecy. These sorts of genealogies were important in establishing one's birthright to the throne because that comes through family. But then Matthew focuses into the drama preceding the birth of Jesus to tell us about Jesus' mother, Mary, and the man who would serve as Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. This is Jesus' family who will love him and care for him and whom he will dearly love. And Matthew also shares with us the threat that existed during this time of the family breaking apart before it even began as Joseph ponders divorcing Mary over her pregnancy. Satan is always trying to destroy the family because of its importance in God's creation and in God's plan of redemption. But God's messenger persuades Joseph not to divorce Mary and thus thwarts the disintegration of this family. Luke zooms out a little further for us. He tells us not only about Mary and Joseph, but he also tells us about Mary's relative who would also bear a son, who would serve as the one who would go ahead and prepare the way for Jesus. So Luke draws us into this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of their son John, as well as Mary and Joseph. And Luke also provides for us a genealogy of, gene, of Jesus, except his genealogy takes us all the way back to Adam. Why is this? Well, because even as Matthew established that Jesus came from Jewish heritage and fulfilled prophecy, Luke wants to establish that the birth of Jesus moved out beyond the Jewish people to be the fulfillment of the hopes of all peoples. Keep that in mind for a moment. I'm going to come back to that. But what about John? We might be tempted to think, well, John has completely ignored the family relations surrounding Christmas. There is, after all, no mention of Mary and Joseph here. There is no mention of Elizabeth and Zechariah. There's no genealogy. There's a reference to John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8, but there's no indication of his relation to Jesus outside of being a witness to him. But is it really the case that John is unconcerned with family? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. We have to remember that John is writing his gospel much later than the others. And he's not only had time to reflect on Jesus' life and ministry over the course of his entire life, but he's also seen the impact and influence of the other gospels on the Christian community. So when he sets out to write his gospel, he intentionally comes at it from a different perspective to include what was lacking or what was unclear in the other Gospels. 
And as one of the early church fathers put it, John's gospel was composed as a spiritual gospel. Jesus' earthly family had already been established in the other gospels, so John wasn't as concerned about establishing the physical reality as he was the spiritual. And we actually see this from the very first verse of his gospel, John beginning to establish the very origin of family by drawing us into the spiritual reality behind it which is the nature of who God is in his essence, in his being. We can easily miss this. But when John says that the word was with God, what the word with expresses is direction. That is to say, the word is in the direction of God, is on the side of God, is towards God. This preposition which we can gloss right over is extremely significant because it's not only telling us of the distinction of the word from God that the word exists along with God but it's telling us of the interrelations between the word and God the persons of the triune God don't just exist along one another, but in eternal relationship, face to face. John, in just one word, begins to reveal to us the eternal intimacy shared between the Father and the Son in the bond of the Spirit. John provides us with the knowledge of a filial relationship, a relationship between father and son that exists within the Godhead. It's a relationship of perfect union, of everlasting love, of peaceful harmony, of mutual self-giving. It's the relationship out of which all of creation is brought into existence, which is what John is pointing us to in verse 3. Why? Because that is the nature of love. The love shared between the Father and Son overflows into the creation of an object of affection. So John begins with this relationship between the Father and the Son and moves us out to all of creation. But fast forward for a moment and look at how he ends his prologue, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This phrase, who is at the Father's side, literally means in the bosom of the Father. Now, this is an antiquated phrase that might seem odd, even uncomfortable to us, but it's describing and emphasizing the intimacy of the relationship that exists within the Trinity. The closeness of the Father and the Son. The picture is of the Son who is resting against the Father's chest. So this prologue begins by drawing our attention to this relationship 
between the Father and the Son, and it ends with the same. This is about family relationships. And if we were outlining this prologue, we would find that it is a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary structure in which words or phrases or concepts are repeated in reverse order. So the first matches the last, and the second matches the second to last, and so on and so forth, which is why verses 1 and verse 18 match up. This is used to stress the importance of what's being said by repetition, but this structure is also used to point to the concept at the very center of the passage. Everything builds to a climax and then descends from the climax in reverse order. It elevates and exalts what is at the center. The question then is, what is the central concept here in this prologue? In John's nativity story, in his theology of Christmas, what stands at the center? Well, in the Greek, the very center of this passage is verse 12. Look at that. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The center of John's Christmas story concerns the children of God. This is about family. It's about true family. It's about spiritual family. John is telling us the meaning of Christmas here. He's telling us why Jesus came. God came to earth in Jesus Christ in order to claim for himself a people who would not only be welcomed into his kingdom, but more importantly, would be welcomed into his family. They would become his beloved children. The stories about those who were once alienated and far off from God becoming, being brought near and adopted as his children. What God does for us in Jesus Christ isn't merely about our legal status before God, our justification. Do you see? God is making a way for his children to come home at Christmas. Christmas is about God giving his son in order that he may gain many children. As Hebrews tells us, for it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God has set out on a redemptive mission for the purpose of adopting children into his family. Why? In order that they might be brought into the intimacy shared between the Father and the Son. We are made to be through faith sons of God with and in and through Jesus Christ. And this means that in him, we are brought into communion with 
God the Father. As we are brought into union with Jesus, we are brought into union with the Father with whom Jesus shares an eternal love and oneness. And God accomplishes this by bringing about a new humanity in Jesus who was made fully man, but at the same time was conceived of God and was therefore not a spiritual descendant of Adam. This is why the virgin birth is so important. And as he comes to us, Jesus reveals to us the very essence, the very being of God. He reveals to us the love that eternally exists within the Godhead. He gives witness to the relationship he shares with the Father. And he invites us into this relationship. But in order for us to come into relationship with God, Jesus must first secure for us reconciliation with God. We are sinners. God is holy. And he does this through his perfect life and substitutionary sacrificial death on a cross. Our sins are forgiven. This work is then completed in his resurrection from the grave, his ascension back to the Father's right hand, where he does what? He prepares a place for us in his Father's house. In his sending of the Holy Spirit to us, who applies his salvific work to our lives, and he brings us into union with Jesus. Without Jesus in, we cannot know God, and even more importantly, we cannot know God as Father. Jesus comes not only to reveal, though, but to draw us into relationship, the relationship shared between himself and his father. This is why Christmas is all about family. And as broken as our families might be here on earth, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be drawn into the one relationship that exists without sin without brokenness, without pain, without estrangement, without loss. We can be drawn into relationship with the Heavenly Father. And perhaps we have gotten a taste of what intimacy with God is like through our earthly father. But as wonderful as an earthly father might be, our Heavenly Father is infinitely better. Or perhaps we've experienced heartache and, and pain on account of our earthly father. Perhaps our earthly father has not been an example of love and kindness and graciousness and patience and generosity. Perhaps our earthly father has in no way pointed us to the nature of who God is. But Jesus comes to show us that we have a God who is a perfect father. He's a father who will never leave us nor forsake us who will always generously provide for us, who gives us our every need, who always has our best interest at heart, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who is always faithful, who will lovingly discipline us when necessary, who invites us to come and to find rest in him, in whom we find our greatest delight. And what John's gospel points us to in these verses is the glorious news of how we become children of God. It isn't through a biological being a biological descendant of Abraham, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's, it's the same thing that Luke's genealogy began to reveal to us. It was God's will to include people of every tribe, nation, and tongue by his grace. And so in Jesus Christ, God expands his family and creates in him a new family, a new Israel. In fact, as John tells us here, Jesus came to those who claimed to be God's people He came to those who were the so-called children of Abraham, and many rejected him. They rejected him because they refused to humble themselves before him. They wanted the glory for themselves. They wanted to show themselves to be righteous by their works. But there is no way to earn our way into God's family. There isn't anything that makes us worthy to be his children. Look at what John tells us. In the same way that Jesus became man, we become children of God. As John says in verse 14, we are born not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus was not conceived in Mary's womb by the will of an earthly father. He took on flesh and became man by the will of his heavenly father. It was an act of God alone. This is how God brings about new humanity in Jesus Christ. In the same manner, we enter into his new humanity and become part of God's family by God's sovereign will. We are born again in Jesus Christ as his beloved children as an act of God's sovereign grace. There isn't any way we can earn it. It isn't because we deserve it. It is solely by God's grace that we receive through faith in Jesus. It was by his choosing us from the foundation of the world, not because of anything good in us, but out of his own love and goodness toward us. And what a tremendous privilege it is to be a child of God. He didn't have to adopt us as his own. In fact, it came at an enormous cost to himself, and and he could have simply given us what we all deserve, his eternal wrath. But in adopting us as his own, we have been granted every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. We have received and are receiving all of the benefits of being the sons and daughters of God Almighty. We have been brought out of the darkness into the kingdom of light. We have been given eternal life and have become heirs and co-heirs with Christ, meaning that we will share in his glory. In him we have been promised an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And right now and for all eternity... We have been given access to God. Intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. Do you believe these things? Sinclair Ferguson speaks of the thrill of that moment when someone you greatly admire invites you into more than simply a formal and rigid relationship. It's that moment when the person says to you, you don't have to call me Mr. or Dr. So-and-so. You can simply call me by my first name. And I remember that moment with my mentor from seminary. I remember the moment he said to me, Jonathan, you don't have to call me doctor. 
you can simply call me Andrew. We have moved into a new relationship as friends and colleagues in ministry. I I will never forget that moment. Ferguson says this, though. "But But that privilege pales into insignificance by comparison with what we have here. Christ is giving us access to the presence of his Father in saying to us, you may now speak to him as I speak to him. With the same right of access, with the same sense of intimacy, with the same assurance that he loves you. We may speak with the Father just as Jesus speaks with the Father. This is what's being revealed to us here in John's prologue and what the Gospels reveal to us in Jesus' teaching when he teaches us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. There is no greater privilege that one could be given, which means there is no greater gift that could be given than God's Son. This is the glorious gospel of Christmas. The glory of Christmas is this, that God left his throne in heaven. He took on human flesh in order to pursue us with his love and claim us by his grace as his beloved children. To bring us into his family. To bring us home. To dwell with him forever. And all that we have, and all All of us have a God-given desire to be a part of family, to be an intimate relationship, to be loved, to be valued. This is why family is so important at Christmas. But what we need to understand is that this desire is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the desire of all nations. So I hope this Advent season we'll spend time meditating on this truth resting in this truth, delighting and rejoicing in this truth. And if we have been made God's children by his grace through faith, then I I pray that we would live like it. I pray that we would respond to God's grace in our lives by living lives that reflect the light of life that is in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist set us an example in this. The apostle John tells us in verse 8 that John the Baptist was not the light, but that he had come to bear witness about the light. Certainly, John had a special role as the one who was ordained to serve in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah, whose task it was to prepare the way for Jesus. And, And what does a witness do? A witness helps to establish truth. John established the truth of who Jesus is as the promised and long awaited Messiah. But John also served to provide as an example simply of being a faithful witness, living in a way that pointed others to the Lord Jesus Christ. As John's gospel records, John the Baptist declaring of himself in relationship to Jesus, he said, I must increase, he must increase, but I must decrease. This should be the goal of each of us. We should desire to see Jesus increase in our lives and we should desire for ourselves to decrease. He is truly the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. 
Jesus later says of John, he was a burning and shining lamp. This should be our goal as well. A lamp does not burn on its own. It requires oil to continue to burn bright. In the same way, we require the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And insofar as we have the Spirit, we should shine brightly for Christ. Our lamps should never be allowed to go out. We shouldn't be squelching the Spirit, nor should we be hiding our light. Rather, we should be seeking to give witness to our Lord Jesus Christ in every way in our lives. We should desire to establish the truth to all around us that Jesus is not dead, but is alive and reigning in power. Jesus ordains that we would serve as witnesses to this truth, just as John served as a witness that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So in closing, if I can make a suggestion, brothers and sisters, we should share the story of Jesus. What better Christmas gift can we give than by telling others this story that the light of life has come into the world, that we might no longer wander lost in the darkness. That God has come into this world, that we might no longer be alienated from him and dead in our sins, but reconciled to him, delivered from our sins, be adopted as his beloved children. Is there a better gift than giving the gift of the truth of Jesus Christ? And if I can make another suggestion, parents, start with your own family, especially your children. Christmas is about family after all. And God desires that the gospel be passed from generation to generation. This is the greatest legacy we can leave with our children. If you aren't already doing this, use Advent to teach your children about who Jesus is and why he came. There are so many good Advent devotionals out there to use with your children. This is your moment to begin reading scripture to your children on a daily basis. This is your moment to sing hymns with them and to pray with them. There are so many good scriptures to read during Advent. There are so many familiar hymns. This is your moment if you don't regularly do family worship. This is your moment to make a habit of it that you can carry into the new year. And if you need some help with this, I or Pastor Scott or Pastor John would be thrilled to help you. But my challenge to all of you is to delight, is to delight in being a child of God and to live like it before others that they might see your good deeds and give your Father in heaven all the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed through your servant John the intimacy shared within the Godhead, the intimacy between the Father and the Son. And Lord, we give you all thanks and praise this day that you have sent your Son that we might be invited to come, to be included into this relationship as your beloved children in Jesus Christ. Lord, what, what a privilege. And Lord, I pray that we would not this day scoff at that. But Lord, I pray that it would be our earnest desire that 
we would have relationship with you, that we would know the intimacy shared between the Son and the Father. And Lord, that we would devote ourselves to, to knowing you and loving you, even as you have made yourself known to us and made your love known to us. And Father, may this help us all the more to celebrate Christmas, to make room in our hearts for Jesus Christ and allow him to rule over our lives as Lord. Before we pray this in his name, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. This is the Christmas Creed. Christian, in whom do we believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten He suffered and was there.